for an awesome time of worship, folks. Thank you. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord on this uh, 4th of July weekend. Time of celebration and eating hot dogs and hamburgers and anything else that you're not allowed to eat the rest of the year. Amen. Some of y'all find that funny. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Amen. God bless you guys. Are there any children that need to be dismissed at this time? We had some folks lined up for that. If they knew, they can be dismissed right now. Um, here you go. Yeah, Miranda's going. There she goes. All right. Thank you, Donna. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. As we uh, continue in this wonderful Gospel, it's, uh, I think today's passage is very appropriate uh, for our time, especially in this day and age of individualism. We have been looking on Wednesday nights uh, through some challenges of how do we think Christianly in a fallen world and how do we react or answer questions from a Christian worldview. And one of the things that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was this very prevalent idea of individualism in our world, especially in our culture. And that is defined as this, I am the center of my world. Matter of fact, it's more so I am the center of the world. And if, if, as you hear that, maybe that's ringing true that you know that that is the, that is the dominant thinking in our culture. Uh, maybe we are sinful as that as well. Uh, the world uh, is us. And I think this passage today is very timely for that. So Matthew chapter 16. At this point in Matthew's gospel by the verse 24, let's kind of remember where we are. Jesus is 12 
they're beginning to see a change in their Lord's focus. They're beginning to see a change in His direction as Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. So from chapter 16 forward in the gospel, that's what's happening. So Jesus is looking to this final end, the final events in Jerusalem that would define his ministry, but define ultimately God's solution to fallen humanity and uh, the, the fallen world that we live in. And so the purpose of Jesus's last days are what they're going to be eternal. And that's what we're going to see here in this text. I mean, the culmination of, of sinful corruption had finally been, as is finally confronted here by the humble denial of oneself, especially Christ himself. He, he's humbly denying himself as he loves us the way the Father loves us. And the passage here that we're looking at, verses 24 through 28, it's, it's a segue, if you remember, from where we looked at Peter's rebuke of Jesus and then Jesus' harsh rebuttal of him, calling him Satan. That was what we looked at last week. And so this actually segues now into verse 24. And Jesus teaches an important aspect for the life of the true disciple. To be a Christian is to be like Christ in every way. And we often forget that the first step to be like Christ, the first criteria of being a follower of him, is to deny oneself and be humble as Christ denied himself and was humble. And so Jesus leads the way here. By his example, he himself denied himself in the events of the cross, and he's calling genuine disciples to do the same. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And let's read verses 24 through 28 together. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word always. And this passage is a very direct passage to those who follow your Son. We are commanded, we are called to suffer and to deny ourselves and actually suffer humiliation on the cross, dying to our desires, dying to our passions, dying to our will. But Lord, in our fallen state, that is impossible for us to do. So this is why we depend on your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray this morning that you would use this time to speak to us through your word. Allow this text to pierce us and reveal to us, Lord, open our hearts, expose us, Father, to those areas where we are not denying them for you. We hold on to so much sin. We hold on to so much selfishness. We need you to show us and reveal to us through your love and your grace our sin and what we are holding back. And so, God, use this time, I pray, for your glory and for edifying your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. 
verse 24 begins, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A very familiar passage to many. But the interaction between Peter and Jesus and the other disciples is one of Jesus' most concentrated teachings here. It's, the, it's his most focused teaching on the true nature of the kingdom of God. If you remember verses 21 through 28, it's one complete text. It's about the essence of the kingdom, the essence really of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 21 through 28 in Matthew 16, you could say as a, as a retelling or summarizing of the main tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the root of this, at the root of all action is the motive for our action. Jesus is direct here. To follow Jesus, to be a genuine disciple, to faithfully come after him in obedience, to come to the command to follow. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is not passively, will you pretty please think of me? Will you pretty please come follow me? Oh, if, if it's not too much trouble, you know, I really would welcome your company. No, that's not Jesus's words. It's a command. Come follow me. And all of this for, uh, this requires full surrender of oneself. And we didn't, we, we actually lie to ourselves, don't we Christians? We have fully surrendered to you, Jesus. And then every time that we are spending significant time in prayer and in God's word, there's something that will cut and reveal to us where we are not surrendering. Yet Jesus commands it here. Now, in order to be a genuine disciple, one must abandon our individualism, we have to abandon the mindset that we have that distorts the true nature of God's authority over his created order because in our individual mindset, we are the center of the world. And the world is us. That's important here in this context here. We have to abandon this. We have to deny it. I mean, this passage is not about one's behavior, but it is about one's essence, one's being, one's view of reality. I won't let that sink in. Especially in our day and age of, of where reality is defined by my relative pers- perspective. Well, that's what I see. That's what you see. So you can't tell me what's right or what's wrong. That's a view of reality that we're dealing with here. I mean, Jesus spells out here the crucial motive in discipleship to risk one's life on the dare that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the sign of a genuine disciple of Christ, that we risk our lives to dare to claim and believe and to hold intently that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. It's one thing to mouth those words. It's another thing to dare to trust them. Here it is. I mean, being shaped and molded in the image of Christ will involve forming our being, forming one's essence, one's perspective on Jesus. And remember, Jesus, he was an anti-success preacher. You hear me? He was an anti-success preacher. He preached humility. He preached brokenness. And that's hard for us to embrace. Because remember what we looked at last week in the previous passage where Peter is confronting Jesus here. And Jesus calls him Satan. Remember, here's the contrast. Jesus, 
the mindset of Jesus, the, the, the worldview of Scripture, in other words, the Christian worldview, is that Jesus goes low. He, he sets his mind on the things of God, and the things of God, if you remember last week, are what? Humility, submission, sacrifice. Whereas the mindset of Satan goes high, setting the mind on serving the self as the highest point. That's what we see here in this chapter. If our mindset is serving the self and striving for the highest point, our mindset is the mind of Satan. That's what Jesus, that's how Jesus was confronting Peter. But if our mindset is the mind of Christ, our mindset is on submission, humility, sacrifice, brokenness. And so Jesus directs us here in verse 24 to be, here's what he says, to be my disciple, he says, is to deny oneself, suffer a sacrifice of the self. In order to follow Christ, the one who sacrificed all for us, he, he expects us to do the same of our own sinful will. What's at the center of our sinful will? Me. Deny oneself. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not a request. That's a command. It's an expectation. If anyone would come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and he has to follow me. And let's, let's break this down. What is this verse saying here? I mean, there's a true battle in the mind of every disciple of Christ. Let's not deny that. There's, there's an ongoing battle in our minds. The self-serving sinful nature that we have resists all efforts to change. That's the issue here. This is why the transformation of the will to follow Christ, to come after him, is necessary. And Jesus says here, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To deny oneself is forgetting even the best and the highest intentions. That's, that's, that's where this begins. It's the way to lose ourselves from being gripped by the concerns of human beings or the concerns of Satan that are manipulated by his distortion. Remember, what is the definition of, this, of the fall? It's a distortion of God's perfect created order. And Satan, that's how he works. He distorts the good. So our intentions may be good. Our thoughts may be good. But those thoughts, if they are not in alignment with our Father in heaven through his Son, Jesus Christ, no matter how good the intention, it's a distortion. And Jesus says here, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the way to lose ourselves. It's, it's, a, it's a way to get away from the manipulation of, of, of satanic forces, the manipulation of our sinful will. Because, the, see, the self, when we talk about the self, the self is the will. It, the self is one's mastery over one's own actions. That's the self. Uh, to deny oneself is to decisively and intentionally you actually have to disown yourself. You actually have to deny one's, yourself of physical comforts to deny that Jesus commands us is the denial of ourselves as lords. You see, when we, when we deny ourselves as our own lords, 
That's the only beginning opening to accepting and embracing Christ as Lord. But here's the dilemma. I mean, it's submitting to one another to our Lord. I mean, it's submitting to another Lord. I mean, we, we see ourselves as Lords of ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 24 is you must submit to another master, another Lord who already is the master of our lives, despite the fact that we are in control of ourselves. I mean, it's the fallen sinful self that will not, that cannot deny the control of sin and then follow Christ. This is why Jesus insists that the genuine follower take up his cross. Take up your cross. Because when we look only at the beginning part of this verse, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself. If we stop right there, let him deny himself, then suddenly we are we are stopping at the point of, okay, I can do this. I can deny myself. I can do this. But look at the what comes after that. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross. That's an image of death. I mean, we see two images here. Uh, it, it follows to the death. We, we must follow in death. But, uh, but this death is also in public. Because think about this. To take up the cross implies crucifixion, and crucifixion was a public humiliation of the self in agonizing death. It was not a private death. It was not a gas chamber death that, you you know, like when we have death penalty now, I mean, we, we try to keep it civil, right? When, when someone is executed now for crimes, we try to make it civil, that's what lethal injection is trying to do, trying to make it to where they just fall asleep and they're not struggling and it's not gory. If someone is electrocuted in the electric chair, then it's in a a place that's private and not public. We don't want to see those kind of things. Yeah, what was crucifixion in the Roman Empire? It was a very public and a very humiliating agonizing death. And that's the image that Jesus says here in verse 24. You must deny, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Public humiliation of the death of our will. How many of us are willing to be in public, publicly, openly, denying ourselves? I mean, this is how Jesus describes, and this is actually how Jesus lives out, how one is to come after him. Crucifixion is not just self-renunciation. In other words, crucifixion is not, okay, I'm dead. I deny all of my sin. No, crucifixion, it's a humiliating public matter. But now notice this, Jesus is not expecting anything of a genuine disciple that he himself is not doing. I mean, Jesus commands us to come and die. That is the call of salvation, to come and die. But that's not the message that we preach, is it? We are called by Christ here to come and die, to take part in Jesus' destiny of suffering. The foundation of this call to bear one's cross is the call to believe that Jesus is more real then death, again, this goes back to the perception of reality. Jesus is more real than death is. I mean, death equalizes the high and the mighty distortion. Remember, 
of, of this self-defined reality. We define reality in our minds for ourselves. And death equalizes this in our minds. I mean, it's, it's only death to the will, death to the self, that one can come after and follow Christ. We have to die to the reality that we have constructed for ourselves. I mean, it's a daily struggle. I mean, this follow me that Jesus is calling for is the climax of Jesus' command here in verse 24. Let's read it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what's the third thing? And follow me. I mean, this follow me, this is the climax of the command here in verse 24. Belief is the active living of faith that, that, that actually empowers us and encourages us and strengthens us to turn our backs on ourselves, to willingly die to self, but more importantly, to die to sin's control of the self. And follow Christ. Because when, when, when we are self-focused, it is the sinful nature that we all carry that is our master. And that master tells us the lie that we do things on our own power and it doesn't hurt anybody else. What's, oh, that's not going to hurt anyone. Who else is that going to hurt? It's just you. And Jesus is saying, deny this. Deny the control that sin has over you and follow me. Now, we, we may stop right there and think, okay, well, there's something that is required of me before I do these things. If that's what you walk away with, then, this, then, then wait, verses 25 through 28 are going to help us see that it's not up to us under our own power. It, now, we are expected, we are commanded, we are called to this denial of self, yet we're not called to do this alone. I mean, Jesus gives his disciples here in verse 25 the way to be free from this grip of human sin, the grip of the human mind that is focused on the self. I mean, that, that is the corrupted mind of success, of pride, of superiority. Remember, that's the center here of, of the sin. We, we elevate ourselves in a superior state. Our pride corrupts the mind. I mean, eternal life as a Jesus follower is going to be radically different from the life of the sinner. Look here in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, Scripture's full of these kind of phrases, aren't they? These if-then statements, and they're always contradictory. But there's something powerful, there's a literary use of this. Notice the emphasis in verse 25 on my sake. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but, for, but whoever loses his life for my sake. Not just whoever loses his life. Loses his life for what? For who? My sake. For the sake of Christ. I mean, Jesus demands from those who follow a total and complete loyalty. He wants, he expects total and complete adoration and loyalty in following him. There's no room for anything else. I mean, here, here there is a decisive expectation to disown oneself, and then the lordship of our own thinking must also be shifted and go under new lordship of Jesus himself. Our very thinking, our very essence, our very being is denied, and we go under a different lordship. Because when we are focused on ourself, who is lord of ourself? I am. And Jesus says, you got to deny that. There's no room for that in my kingdom. 
If you come into my kingdom with you being Lord over your own mind and your own self and your own actions, there's no room for you in my kingdom. That's pretty direct here. I mean, verse 25 is Jesus's statement of the vanity of self-preservation that sin brings. Sin tells us I can preserve my own life. I can preserve my own eternity. It's up to me. That's the sin. And whoever tries to save one's life will actually ruin it. That's the words here in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever tries to save one's life will actually ruin their lives. But whoever throws one's life away, you could actually, if, if you want to understand what denying oneself is, you could actually translate that throwing one's life away. But if you throw your life away out of devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ, he will actually save it. That's the, that's the, that's the contradiction of secular minded thinking versus Christian thinking. You see the difference? I mean, what Jesus expressed here in verse 25 is nothing that he himself has not already done. Remember, Jesus denied himself as God willed him to do it. And then he was found alive in his father's affirmation. Remember, the first time that the father in heaven affirmed Jesus publicly was in Matthew chapter 3. The words of the father came down from heaven as Jesus was being baptized. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we're going to see that same affirmation one more time next week in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Two times only in Scripture that we hear God's audible voice saying publicly, this is my son. I am proud of him. But next week at the Mount of Transfiguration, there's going to be one more phrase added. Follow him. I mean, the same praise that comes from the Father in heaven upon Jesus comes upon the disciple who throws away his life, denies the self for the sake of the kingdom. Because, I mean, if we throw away our own lives for our own benefit, we're not doing anything other than what we were already doing, focused on the self. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll deny my comfort level for my own salvation. That's still the self at the center. You see how that works? I mean, think about this. Life is found here, verse 25. Why is life found? It's because God the Father grants it out of his pleasure. And he's pleased with the one who throws his life away for the sake of his son. He's pleased with his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly sacrificed himself for us. And that eternal life is granted by God the Father because he's pleased. And those times where God is not pleased is when we're focused on our own selfish ambitions and our own own control of ourself. When we are in that state, when we are in control of our own destinies, when we're in control of our own lives, God is not pleased. He expects us to deny ourselves, throw our lives away for him. But the teaching here, let's, let's look here in verse 25 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The emphasis here is life. The life here in verse 25, those of you who are in psychology circles, this is actually the word. It's it's the Greek word psyche, meaning the very self, the very being of who you are. It's one's eternal being that we're talking about here. The soul, if you will. That's really what's being talked about here in verse 25. 
Because that's what's being echoed again in verse 26. I mean, it's the aspect of one's being that defines who one is. So the connection between life in verse 25 and the soul in verse 26 is the same. You got to throw that part of yourself away. But the teaching here in verses 25 through 27, let, let us, we, we have to understand this. It's not a self-help passage. It's not a how do you conduct your life as a Christian passage. As much as it is pointing to something else, it's the way that we understand denying the self, the way that we understand Christ as Lord of our, of us and we follow him has to be understood. And here's the big word, folks, eschatologically. I've said that word here a lot. The end times looking forward. It's the, in other words, what is the end purpose of all of this? That is, Jesus indicates that the life that is found, the one that comes after you throw your life away, one's self-lord, once, once you discard your self-lordship, it's one that is eternal and will be granted at the final judgment. In other words, you may not see this life found here and now. It's an eternal life that's coming. I mean, the point made here is that not that we lose something, but instead, rather, we gain something. You see that here? It's not that we're necessarily losing something. It's that we're gaining something. What is it that we're gaining? Remember, our sinful lives, our lordship of ourselves, is not a gain, but is rather a loss. And it's a great loss at that. And, and we do not find ourselves by looking out for ourselves. We're not number one, folks. I mean, we find ourselves by risking honest sacrificial discipleship. This is a risk for the genuine believer. That's why it's difficult for us to follow these words. There's a risk here. Real life, Jesus claims, is the gift on the last day to his self-denial followers. That's your gift. The life that you will gain is the gift. Look here at verses 26 through 27. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is looking forward to judgment day. I mean, to lose one's soul is not that one loses one's Corporeal life, that's the word here. In other words, you don't, you're not losing your physical life. You're not losing your life now. You are, but it's different. It's th- this reference about forfeiture. When you forfeit one's own life, it's the forfeiture of eternal life. So when you do not deny yourself, when you do not follow Christ, what you're forfeiting is your eternal life that would be granted at the final judgment day. I mean, that's what's clear in verse 27. Like it's in, when it says in verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Forfeiting your soul is described in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I mean, verse 26 is a warning that the treasures of the world are a poor substitute for the eternal destiny of one's soul. I mean, the soul is who we are. I mean, the soul is the life that is in us, but it is who we are eternally. And if that soul is consumed by the treasures of the world, concerns that eternal life of the soul is in jeopardy. 
If we consume our souls with the concerns of the world, if we consume our souls with the treasures of this world, what's at stake here is eternal life. I mean, the forfeiture is to suffer loss. Yeah, what does it mean to forfeit? It's to give up without ever showing up. Y'all play sports? What happens when the other team doesn't show up? They forfeit. So when Jesus uses the language here and forfeits his own soul, I mean, that implies to me pretty directly that it's people who don't even show up. They're not even bothering to listen to the word of the Lord. They're not even bothering to listen and follow Christ. They forfeit their own soul. <laughs> Think about Jesus warns here in verse 26 that to forfeit one's soul for limited gains of this world is actually to suffer what could be gained elsewhere. Because we are so limited in our perspectives. We're so limited in our vision. All we can see is what's right here in front of us. And what's right here in front of us is a fallen sinful world. And when we don't even see the eternal glory that is possible that Jesus Christ is speaking about here, we forfeit the possibility of taking part in it. Verse 27 shows us that the eternal forfeiture here will actually become clear when the Son of God, Jesus himself, comes for final judgment. That's the point of verse 27. In this sinful, fallen world, you're going to be blinded, but the only way that this will become clear is when I come back with with my angels in the glory of my Father, and it's then that I will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, before we go too much farther, we can look at this verse 27 and think, okay, this is all about my works, what I do. Y'all ready? Let's dig into this and realize why that's not the definition, okay? I mean, every person... Each person here has two meanings. First, every person means all people will be rewarded or judged. All people. Secondly, every disciple will be judged. So Jesus is talking about two tiers here of judgment. First, it's the universal, everyone will be judged, but he's also specifically talking to his disciples. So secondly, every disciple will be judged. I mean, these words are comfort to the disciples here who deny themselves, genuine disciples of Christ who genuinely deny themselves, turn away from themselves, who throw their lives away in obedience to Jesus Christ. These words are a warning to disciples who do not dare deny themselves. See, if you do deny yourself, these are words of comfort. If you do not deny yourself, these are words of warning. I mean, these words are a warning to those disciples, those who are in the church, those who claim the name of Jesus, who do not dare deny themselves to die to themselves so as to prove that they are not disciples at all. The disciple who does not deny himself, the Christian, the church member who does not deny themselves at the very end in verse 27, they will be repaid according to what they have done. I mean, the end, the final day of the Lord here determines the value of one's life, one's standing before God. This is, again, this this is that idea of you may suffer in this world. It's hard to deny yourself in this sinful world, but there's a glorious end awaiting that determines the value of it all. 
I mean, the judgment will be based on one point and one point alone. Did this quote unquote disciple turn away from himself into Christ by confessing the truth that Jesus is the Christ? Do they confess and honestly believe that Jesus is the one to redeem the world? And did this disciple follow faithfully to the point of suffering the loss, denying oneself, throwing one's life away for Jesus Christ? That is the point of judgment. The Son of Man will repay each person according to what he has done. Not what he has done by checking off the Christian list. What he has done in denying himself throwing his life away, and obediently surrendering to a new Lord. That's the point. I mean, here Jesus brings to light the reminder of a future judgment for a reason. I mean, he does, I mean Jesus doesn't say anything without purpose. I mean, if we're to see the worthlessness of this worldly life, we, we one must be affected by the heavenly life. In order to see how worthless, how invaluable this living is in this world, we have to see it in comparison to the glory of the heavenly. I mean, deeply affected. We have to be deeply affected by this. In other words, what we need to see here is the reality of an eternal heaven in contrast to the blind reality, the false reality that we have made in this fallen world. Again, this goes back to a question of reality. I mean, Jesus describes here in verse 27 the comfort waiting for the suffering servant. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. If you are a suffering servant and you see the Lord coming with His angels in His glory, is that not comforting? I mean, Jesus says to place your life fearlessly, boldly, where? In His hands. In His hands means that we're under his protection, no matter how difficult it is. In other words, what Jesus is saying here in verse 27, what's he, what's he revealing? This returning of, and he comes back with his angels in his glory. He's saying that he will be our avenger. He will see that, that all will see, all will see his protection for his faithful. Those who harm us for his sake We'll see him in the glory of the eternal father from heaven. So when Jesus says here in verse 27, he's coming back, that's for not only all to see, it's also particularly for his genuine disciples to see, but then those who are not his disciples will also see it. And there'll be two reactions. One is glory and acceptance and praise, and the other one will be cowering and terror and fear. And when they see him, when those who harm us for Jesus' sake will see him, the one that we submitted to, the one that we obeyed in the glory of the eternal father from heaven. When they see him, those who are obedient will be fully restored, even though for a short time we suffer and seem to die right now at the hands of the enemies of God. Because what's happening in this text, Jesus, remember in chapter 16, is more focused and intent on preparing his disciples to carry the church after he departs. And what happens for the faithful, the genuine followers of Christ, they don't have a glamorous life. They don't have this life now. Because the Christian knows that eternal life is yet to come. 
I mean, the warning that Jesus gives in this verse is not to judge the eternal future by now. In other words, don't, in, don't judge the eternal hope by today's present. What we experience now as genuine Christians is suffering. Even if that suffering is for the sake of Christ, it is part of a hidden reality that is much beyond this. So this is why it's difficult for us to suffer. Do y'all like to suffer? You know, y'all going to leave here this morning, this afternoon and go home and just cause suffering in your home. It'd be ludicrous, wouldn't it? But the life of the Christian, the life of the genuine disciple, according to Jesus in this text, is you will suffer. <laughs> he says here in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So Jesus is preparing His disciples here. I mean, this is the phrase of assurance. Truly I say to you, or if you've got the King James, verily, verily, I say to you. That sounds more poetic, doesn't it? I mean, this is the phrase of assurance. I mean, from Jesus to emphasize that his word is trustworthy. Whatever follows this phrase is guaranteed. When he said, every time you see in the scriptures, truly I say to you, if you underline that, anything that comes after that is a promise and it's assured. It's believable. I mean, Jesus promises that his future glory will be radiant and beyond earthly comparison. Can, are y'all getting the picture here in your minds? I mean, Jesus calls the faithful disciple, the genuine disciple, to deny himself and to take up his cross. That is to die to one's passions, to die to one's self-serving desires. And in doing so, one will lament the delay of Christ's glory. We're going to, when we are genuinely in Christ, we, 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 lament the fact that Christ has not come yet. Because that's what we're waiting for. I mean, to support his disciples in this time, Jesus gives these words of comfort. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, some interpretations of this text, after that church should have argued that verse 28 speaks of John the Beloved, John the Apostle. It's a, there's a reference in John chapter 21, verses 21 through 23, that hints that Jesus called John the Apostle to remain alive until Christ's return. Y'all ever heard that in church history? Church traditions, and here's where they get that. Part of it is here in Matthew 16, verse 28, when he says, Truly I say there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Well, if that's the case, John the Apostle would still be alive. But also, we see this um, in John chapter 21, verses 21 through 23, if you're taking notes. When Peter saw him, this is what that text says. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until he comes, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. I mean, that's what John chapter 21, verse 23 says. That gives you a hint that in the earliest days of church history, there was this legend that John the Apostle would not die until Christ returned. Is that what Jesus is saying here? No. In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus must not be speaking of John the Apostle or any other miraculous immortality. That's not what he's saying. So what is Jesus saying here at the end of Matthew 16? When he says, will not taste death, 
I mean, when the Son of Man returns, when Jesus returns, some disciples will, with an eternal shock, actually realize that they'll be shown up by the glory of Jesus Christ to be revealed as nothing more than liars. Some will be shown as never having been disciples of Jesus at all. They just looked like they were. Let's look here at verse 28 again. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming at His kingdom. I think that phrase here, not taste death, you could tie that to denying yourself back up in verse 24 and 25. In other words, they, there are some disciples, quote unquote, some followers of mine who will not understand this until they see me coming back in my glory because they failed to die to themselves. They were lied to by the devil. They lied to themselves. They never tasted death the way a disciple of mine must. But at the end, when I come back, they're going to stand in shock. That's when they'll taste death, and it'll be too late. I mean, when the Son of Man returns, some disciples will. They're going to be shocked. They're going to realize that they were living a lie. So in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, let's emphasize this, one must taste death. One must taste death of the self, death in the suffering that is shared in Christ. Did Jesus avoid the suffering of death? No. Now, how can we who claim his name ever hope to avoid the same? I mean, in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to taste death. One must. And death is imminent for us all. And death is imminent even for Christ Jesus here. I mean, death is true enough for every one of us. And there's some of us in this room, we're so young, it's, it's too far away for us to think, oh yeah, one day I'm going to die. But trust me, I'm now beyond the 50 mark, the 50 year mark. Death is getting closer and closer and closer. And there's still, there's some in this room laughing at me. Well, you're just 50 ish. (laughs) (laughs) You see the point here? I mean, death is imminent for us all. And Jesus expects and emphasizes here not our coming to him in death, but rather the Son of Man coming to us in his glory. In verse 28, it's not necessarily as much as we are facing death as much as we are facing his glory. And if we're one of his true, genuine disciples, that's what we share in. But if we're not, we'll taste death on that day. And we'll be shocked. I mean, Jesus is speaking with candor here. You know that big, you know, that's a big word. What does candor mean? Blunt. Jesus is being blunt here. So that we who are faithful disciples will see it. I mean, connecting here, let's take a look here. If you go back to verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If you connect verse 21 with verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This was the mindset of our Savior at this moment. 
and he's training and preparing his disciples. I mean, the Christ, Jesus Christ himself, must suffer. So just as he must suffer, just as he must die and resurrect, so too with the faithful disciple, we will experience the same. If we are genuine Christians... If we have genuinely denied ourselves, we will taste death just as Jesus Christ himself experienced death. Publicly, humiliating, suffering. I mean, all true disciples of Jesus are described as men of sorrows, just like Jesus Christ is described as the man of sorrows. And these men of sorrows who taste death both of themselves, their self-serving passions and their literal death of the body. You've got two deaths going on here. You've got the literal death of the body and you've got the death of your self-serving passions, the death of your self-serving soul. But, but the promise from our Jesus here is that none of this suffering and death will go unnoticed. I think that's the takeaway here in verse 28 and 27. None of the suffering that his faithful endure will go unnoticed. I mean, it's God's promise through His Son that all who taste death for the sake of Jesus Christ will see an eternal reward that actually outshines any lost treasure that the world could have given. I mean, the encouragement here is that the true disciple will be encouraged in this reality, this promise, and who better to keep this promise than our Lord Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God, and God is a covenant keeper. And we are his covenant people. And so the genuine disciple of Jesus may seem to lose much in this world. And that's a struggle, isn't it? Oh, Jesus, I could have. Why why didn't you give me that job that I really wanted? Why didn't you give me the family that I always dreamed of? Why didn't you give me status and fame? In the end, all of that will pale. I mean, this is Jesus' promise and comfort that as we suffer and we fail in this world, God is watching. He's watching. Think about this. We do not deny ourselves with the intent of earning an eternal promise, though. We don't deny ourselves with, okay, Jesus, look at me. I've denied myself. Now give me my reward. Who does that sound like in the parables? The prodigal son, doesn't it? I mean, instead, the true disciple denies himself for no reward at all. Denial of the self, death to the self, is for the sake, not of ourselves, but for the sake of who? Jesus Christ. And so the point is not our reward, yet we will be rewarded. I mean, the point is that the Lord Jesus Christ, if Jesus is glorified through his suffering and his death, then he pours out his glory upon those who empty themselves for him. The point is is Christ here. So as we close this morning, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, who are you this morning? I mean, who are you? Where are you in your life with the Lord? Are you a Christ denier? who actually keeps one foot firmly planted in this world? Really, if you hold on to any aspect of this fallen world, you are denying Christ. Or are you a denier of the self? 
who has embraced completely this man of sorrows and who this man of sorrows has embraced in return. I mean, this suffering servant who must die for all sins to be atoned is Jesus Christ. And, and here's the question. Are we Peter who cannot fathom this about our Lord, much less about ourselves? Remember, Peter struggled with the fact that Jesus would suffer. And we will struggle with the fact that we will suffer and must suffer as well. Who are we to avoid suffering and death when Jesus our Lord did so on our behalf? My last words here, take courage. If you're a Christian, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, Jesus promises that His glory will be our glory as we are His in death and in resurrection. And if those words are not words of comfort to you, then I challenge you to listen to the voice of the Father. Let Him reveal to you who you are. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this time and this word. And God, I do pray that right now as we, we now transition our worship into a time of obedience by coming to the Lord's table and remembering the suffering and the death of our Lord. Dear God, I pray that you will cause us to be humble and reveal to us who are your genuine faithful that there is a reward promised. We just have to endure until it comes. But dear God, as we remember the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would remind us of why that occurred. It occurred by your plan, your design, that our sins would be atoned for and your wrath would be appeased. And your son's body had to be broken and his blood had to be spilled. And so, God, this moment as we transition, I pray that you would be here in this room, that you would cause us to worship you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the men come, we have visitors with us this morning, and I say thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. We have sovereign grace. We worship at the Lord's table uh, the first Sunday of every month. That's our tradition. And as we come, we invite all visitors to join at the table with us with this criteria that all in this room, anyone who are regulars here, who are visitors here, remember, this time is for those who are Christians, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those who have been baptized and are true believers in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to partake. But as we come, we have to remember the warning of Scripture, the caution of Scripture, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this body is referred to twofold. It's the body of Christ, the community of his believers, but it's also the individual. So I ask you at this time to use this time for meditation and prayer. As the men distribute the elements, take both the cup and the bread, hold those, use this time to pray, and we'll all take together.